0: So if you ever find yourself on the front range, you need to eat at this place called Cain's Chicken, okay? Uh, it, it, this is like the primary thing they're known for, the, the curly fries, the coleslaw, the toast, the chicken fingers, and this uh, pepper dipping sauce that is really good. Now, don't let me oversell it, because it's no Chick-fil-A, but it is good, okay? <laughs> And I bring this up because I remember the first time I ever saw this restaurant. We were actually driving through Oklahoma. They hadn't made it to Colorado at the time. I saw one of these and I said out loud, Cain, Cain's the bad guy in the story. Why would you name a restaurant after Cain? Doesn't doesn't seem to work. Now it's spelled differently, but I think a lot of us still, even with a different spelling, get the point. So I had to look up, okay, where does this name actually come from? Who thought this name was actually a good idea? And actually, the business was started in Louisiana when they were building their first property. There was a service dog, a therapy dog, that would often visit the site, and the yellow lab's name was Kane. We got a picture of it if we go back the slide. Okay? Which I understand that old Yeller's taken, but who's going to name a therapy dog Kane? Okay? I'm not going to pet that dog. I, you know, I wouldn't pet old Yeller either. If you've seen the end of the movie, you know why. Okay, there, there's some interesting name choices here. But I bring this up because Cain and Abel stand as a testament as to what happens when sin enters the world. We see this in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, after the fall, these two are the first people born into a broken world. And the brokenness inside of them manifests to the point where Cain is so jealous of his brother that he's willing to kill his brother Abel because of the sacrifice, um, the, the jealousy over the sacrifice that Abel had made. And thousands of years later, I wonder, are we still raising little Cains? Um, I must confess that siblings fight. So as an older brother, I beat my little brother so badly that he quit wrestling and took up basketball. True story, okay? So I I understand what siblings do here. And I heard it said recently that you're not really a parent until you have two kids because that's when they can start fighting. So I, I don't know about that, but I know what having two kids has done to me. It's turned me into two things, a referee and a judge. Okay, so I get to uh, referee fights. Last night, they were fighting over the hairball they pulled out of the hairbrush. What a great thing to fight about, right? (laughs) True story. And then it turns you into the judge at times where they're debating, they're arguing something, and you have to settle the conflict. How am I going to rule? How am I going to judge in this moment? See, we as humanity have this perpetual propensity to fight with each other. To argue, to not get along, to have problems. So the question we have to ask is, how do we solve this issue? The Ten Commandments say not to murder. And as far as I know, in every country, in all of the world, murder is listed as a law. You are not to murder. And how's it going for us? Well, in our country, we have prisons full of murderers. Uh, if you were to go watch tonight's dateline on NBC, you'll not, you'll see that they're not in danger of running out of any material, right? They've got plenty of conflicts to solve. So how do we fix the problem? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. This is what we're seeking to learn from today. How do we fix our problem in our world of murder? First, let's go to the problem solver in prayer. God, we come to you in our brokenness, needing a better way to live. We live with the uh, laws and these laws tend to fall short. We still have anger, fights, quarrels, conflicts, and even murders. So today, through the power of your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear a better way to live, this better way that Jesus is offering. Pour through me the gift of preaching that Christ may be formed in hearts. It's in your name that I pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so we're getting ready to get into uh, Jesus's teaching. But before we get into this new teaching, let's look back at where we've been in this greatest sermon of all time. Remember, the sermon starts with a blessing, a blessing we must receive. Second, the sermon starts with an identity for us, that we are to be salt and light. And so we are going to see the third part here of the introduction in just a second. And it's all about Jesus's Purpose, In a sense, this is Jesus' thesis statement for his mission on earth, for what he's going to say in the Sermon on the Mount. And it sounds like this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen... Will be by any means disappeared from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of these, uh, uh, the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's a nasty rumor going around at this point, a nasty rumor about Jesus spreading through Judea. And the rumor is this. The rumor is that Jesus is not following all of the Jewish commands. It's a belief that Jesus does not follow the example of the prophets. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see examples of Jesus breaking some of the Jewish laws and the Pharisees and the scribes being pretty upset with it. The main example I think of over and over again is Sabbath laws. Now, remember at this point in Judaism, they had laws, but they had extra laws. Sabbath laws they added on to these, they clearly defined what it meant to rest on the Sabbath, how many steps you could th- take, what you could cook, how many things you could do, and that 's part of what Jesus was coming to defeat, and we 'll see his actions in that in the Sermon of the Mount, but the Pharisees listening in or the scribes listening in at this point, they would have snickered, they would have said, Oh jesus, you're coming." To fulfill the law? Because it seems like you're trying to abolish it. So the question I want to flesh out today, and we'll see through this first example, is what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law? And in order to understand this, we have to see what kind of picture Matthew is painting. For us. Um, and so Jesus has just spent 40 days in the wilderness just before this. Now Jesus is on top of the mountain. We have a picture to remind you. This is up on this mountain giving his commands. Why is this important? Because if you've done your daily Bible reading today, you'll know why. Because God and Moses went into the wilderness and they met up on top of a mountain where they made a covenant together. In this moment, the symbolism is great that humanity and God are on top of the mountain together, making and establishing a new covenant. But this covenant, we'll find out, really isn't new. It's more a fulfilling of the old. So Jesus says this really confusing statement that would have had two main reactions to it for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees you will not enter the kingdom of heaven remember the Pharisees are the guys with all the laws what do you mean Now, the Pharisees would have used this against him, right? If their media back then was anything like our media today, this would have been the fact finder section. Jesus says that until your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Well, Jesus did this. Is that a, you know, that we'd go on and on with that sort of thing. And the majority of people listening, the common people, they probably would have been shaking in their boots at this point. It would have been terrified. What are we doing? How are we possibly going to live this out? Because the Pharisees and the scribes, those were supposed to be the best of the best. Those were supposed to be the the good guys, the ones who were following all the rules. And Jesus said, you got to be better than them. The common folk, I think, would have been scratching their heads saying, well, so much for entering the kingdom of heaven. Maybe I need to walk down the mountain at this point. And here's where I need you to listen in. If your neighbor's asleep, elbow them, wake them up. Jesus is fulfilling the law by teaching them and us how to live it. Okay? God has already given these same laws for thousands of years. And guess what? No one's been able to follow it. They've tried. They've worked really hard. It hasn't worked out. So Jesus is God saying, I'll just show you how to do it myself, okay? It's what we call nowadays on-the-job training, figuring it out as we go through life. So in a second, we're going to look at this next section that we're going to be in for a few weeks, where Jesus goes through six different commands. We're going to look at the first one today of Torah teaching. And spoiler alert, these are some of the hardest teachings in all of the Bible, But Jesus isn't just going to give us a law. He's not going to say, oh, don't just murder. He's going to give us the heart of the law. He's going to tell us how to follow it. So Jesus is going to sound a little bit like an attorney here. Uh, We might all have trauma there, so good luck getting through this. But he says, you have heard it said, okay? So the you have heard it said is him citing the Old Testament law. And then he will say in these next six sections, but I tell you, and this is Jesus' teaching. This is Jesus saying, okay, this is what it means to live out this law, to live out this Torah. And so I need to ask us a big question before we start examining these laws. How do we live the law? How do we follow Jesus' teaching? What does that look like in our life? I, th- I think it's humans we have two tendencies that we tend to go to when it comes to following god's laws they've been played out over thousands of years the first is to be legalistic like the pharisees now in churches of christ this is our tendency we clearly define what it looks like to follow the law we make it black and white so there's no question if we are following the law or not but here's the thing I've been around some really legalistic Christians who are following the letter of the law. And on the inside, they are totally wicked, corrupt, and evil. So what's going on there? The second option is to settle for what Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes as cheap grace. This is the seeker-sensitive church model that is really good at making conversions, but really struggles when making disciples. Their Christmas and Easter services tend to be really full, but the rest of the year, things tend to decline because there's not much on a deeper level. So Jesus rejects both of these. Jesus gives us a third option, and let me explain this option with two metaphors. The first is this. If I were to ask you what you love, what would you answer with? Think about that. What do you love? Now, I'm guessing you would say you love your spouse, you love your kids, you love your grandkids, you love chocolate, which is an acceptable answer. However, if you were to ask a good Jew what they loved, they would say, I love Torah. I love the law. I love the rules. Now, I don't know if there's anything more un-American than saying, yeah, I really love all the rules. That's great. Uh, You know, that doesn't sit with our culture today. But King David says it like this. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day and night or all day long. How do we love the law? What does that look like? Well, I want to explain that with another analogy. I think all of us at this point living in Colorado have probably driven through a blizzard at some point. You know that feeling when it's pouring down and the the wind is blowing the snow and it feels like you're in a Star Trek episode for a while as it comes through and you're really focusing on So get that picture in your mind. Because when you're in a blizzard like that, you know what you really love? The guardrails, right? (laughs) They're really, really beneficial. And you know, the other thing that has saved me in some blizzards, the yellow and white lines. I'm very appreciative of those in a blizzard. See, the law is the yellow and the white lines. The law is the guardrails. The, the thing that we lie to ourselves about is we don't and we forget we're in a blizzard in life. Life is a blizzard and we often in t- in life take the guardrails and the lines for granted but when you realize you're in a storm you tend to really love those guardrails and lines so you know my uh least favorite part of monarch pass my least favorite part is the portion where there's no guardrails you know where the avalanche comes down all the time so they can't put those up and when I go through that and it's just snowed and it's it's all slick I just feel like I am going through life with nothing to catch me right I really love guardrails in that moment and If you've ever had a point where you've slid in the snow, slid in the ice, had an accident, you tend to be really thankful for those guardrails and lines. In college, we were coming down from Monarch uh, from a great ski day. A bunch of friends, we were in different vehicles, and a bunch of people piled into my buddy's Tacoma. They're heading down, and on their way down, they hit a slick spot, and they rolled the Tacoma down Monarch Pass. It's a weird feeling, you know, seeing the accident and driving up and you're like, my friends. Now, thankfully, everyone was all right besides the Tacoma. Uh, it didn't make it out of the incident, but they were safe. And so since then, whenever I come down Monarch Pass after a day of skiing, especially in the snowstorm, I drive down the pass like a grandpa, okay? You can, ask, you can ask Aubrey. She makes fun of me for it because I am thanking the Lord for guardrails and lines on the side of the road the entire time. But on a deeper level, if you have ever suffered the consequences of making a bad decision, of making a wrong turn in life, you realize how beneficial those guardrails actually are. We were about to have another driver in our church today if they pass the test and man, when you're parents and kids in adolescence, isn't this what you're doing? You're, they got a little bit of freedom, and you're saying, okay, you're out there making your own decisions where to turn that wheel, but you, remember, you got laws, you got guardrails, you got things keeping you on track in life. That's how it is with God's law. That's how it is with the Torah. We love the law because there are guidelines through life. Jesus' example is the fulfillment of this. It shows us what it means and what it looks like to fulfill the law. It's how we learn to live through life. Now, now that we know that Jesus has come to fulfill the law, that we've covered that and we've covered the introduction, we need to start looking at what Jesus is actually going to teach. Buckle up with me, okay? We're getting ready to go through a blizzard and we're getting ready to find our way out. So we'll start with the first one today. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to just judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, If you have an offering at the altar and there you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in the front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle the matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until so you have paid the last penny. Now last time I checked I hadn't murdered anyone. So I'm feeling pretty good about keeping the 10 commandments, right? I at least have one up on Moses. <laughs> and hopefully when I look at all of you and I think and where you're standing at, hopefully you haven't murdered anyone either. So we can look at the 10 commandments in the Torah and we can say we're doing pretty good. And then Jesus comes along and says, "But if anyone is angry with a brother or sister, it's subject to judgment." And then it hits. Okay, Jesus, you got me. I thought I was doing well, but now I am guilty of judgment. And this is where we like to bring all of our butts to Jesus. But Jesus, did you see what they did to me? It hurts so badly, and I don't like it. And that you know, we come up with all of our excuses. And Jesus doesn't even answer him. He just continues on by talking about this name calling. Jesus uses the word raka, this slang word that you could probably see in the footnotes of your Bible. It's to call someone vain, empty, worthless. It's actually derived from the word to spit on someone. To call someone raka was to verbally spit on them. Then Jesus gives us a caution sign that we're in danger of hell if we use the Greek word for fool, which actually is moros. You guessed it. It's where we got the word moron. So be careful who you call a moron unless you like it really hot. So when our hearts get angry, things escalate, right? The anger doesn't just sit it builds in us so what's the next thing that comes out all kinds of name calling we call people idiots dumb stupid moron and Jesus is telling us that even taking it that far is a sin but Jesus still doesn't stop there he continues on if your brother or sister has something against you and you're about to worship stop worshiping and go deal with it In other words, Jesus is saying, no, don't worship me until you have dealt with this issue. It's impractical what Jesus is saying here, that you have bought your animal to sacrifice for atonement to God, that you are getting up to the altar, that you're getting ready to sacrifice this live animal. And then you're like, you know what? I'm just going to leave the dove here or the lamb here. Can you hold that for a second? What are the, you know, can you imagine there's like a sheep running, a lamb running through the temple courts And you're off dealing with reconciling with someone. It seems impractical, and that's the significance of the point that Jesus is making. Because what's our tendency when we have a conflict with someone? Avoid. We sit on the opposite side of the room from them in worship service. We avoid them after service. Try not to talk to them. If things are really bad, we we go to a different church. Not to, not to be around them, or even worse, we say, God, we want to follow this command, so I just won't go to church, so I don't have to be around any of those Christians kind of thing, we say to ourselves. But the goal here of Jesus, the goal is not to stop worshiping. Of course, God wants us to continue to worship him. The goal is for us to be reconciled to our brother and sister in Christ. So here's a challenge for you. What if every single time you took communion or what if we even came up and someone said, hey, think about it. Is there anyone you need to reconcile with? Is there someone who has something against you? And we got up and walked out of the room and we didn't take communion until we reconciled with those people man, that seems really hard, like a really significant thing to do, right? But I wonder how healthy of relationships we would have if we were constantly working through our different different issues that inevitably we bump into in life. And so Jesus, after all this, it's like, could you stop there? But he has to take it just one step further. He says, uh, hey, before you even go to court, Just settle out of court, okay? In other words, be an adult. Resolve the conflict, right? Because you might think, hey, I got everything right. It's going to go well for me. This is really going to work out. And actually, you go to court and you lose. You get everything taken away from you because of it. See, Jesus' fulfillment of the law gets to the core of the issue. For thousands of years, we've been saying, we've been making laws, do not murder. And it hasn't worked well for us. So how do we really work in the world? It's preventative. Have you ever heard of preventative medicine? Some of you may practice this. You know what this is like. This is preventative work in the world. If your heart is never angry, you can't murder someone. No one just goes from zero to murdering something. It is something that builds inside of us. It's not letting this escalate in your heart until you can't even worship God. So we started uh, this sermon looking at Cain and Abel. And I want to end this sermon looking at what God is doing on a larger scale. See, unfortunately, history tells us the story of Cain and Abel repeating itself over and over again. And when I look at the world we are living in, I wonder if we are raising more Cain's. The world can seem like an angry place. Cain had the audacity to say to God, am I my brother's keeper? And Jesus answers it here. Yes, yes, obviously you are your brother's keeper. See, our mission in the world is to save the canes, to show the would-be canes in this world a better way to drive through the blizzards of life. Most of all, our mission in life is to silence the cane inside of our own hearts. And this can be really hard because people hurt us, they wrong us, they treat us poorly. And so I think there's a really good perspective that Paul gives us. Sounds like this. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. When you realize you've been forgiven of much, it enables you to forgive much. So over the coming weeks, we are going to look more and more at Jesus' plan to live and love the law on a bigger scale. Jesus' teachings reverse the ways in the world But they do it one heart at a time. Jesus shows us another way to live. The way of reconciliation. The way of building instead of destroying. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to talk about these escalating cycles of violence and retribution. And over and over again, he talks about how things can build like a snowball. In Genesis 4, do you remember what God said to Cain? sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. Sounds a lot like what Jesus is saying here about the anger in your heart. So what do we have to do? We have to cut it off at the beginning. The way to prevent war and murder and violence and tribalism is to cut it off at the root. And no one, no law, no person can look at the heart. Only Jesus can. But the world is healed one person at a time. And one person at a time is reconciled to God's love and God's law. And they leave their anger and their hatred and their wrath all at Jesus' feet. And so I can't help but think as we get ready to close. We've been practicing this for 2,000 years as Christians. And sure, we've made our mistakes. But I can't think about how many relationships have been reconciled because of people trying to live out these words? So many good things happening in these worlds. How many lives have been saved because of people living this teaching of Jesus? So may we do our duty, may we do our part to save the Cain's in this world. Let's pray as we close. God, we can just feel sometimes how angry people are. It's hard to understand where this anger comes from. Somewhere deep in their soul. And we can be tempted to feel this anger too. So God, may we love your loss. May we see Jesus as the fulfillment of this. May your spirit guide and direct us as we learn how to to live this out. May we stop the anger at our root. May we be a church that reconciles with each other, that comes over these conflicts with each other. May we be your people. So thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his teaching. Thank you for his love and forgiveness and grace for us. We pray all this in his name and all who agreed said. Amen.